from Jean was wonderfully um, free and non-specific. And basically, the idea, as far as I, I grasp it, is to riff in a sort of lateral way rather than a literal way of the exhibitions that are here. And when I came in and saw Fiona's work, these were the first two names on my kind of wish list. I absolutely never imagined, really, that I would manage to get Robin and Nicholas, who travel all the time, to be here on this one evening. And you obviously responded um, with the same enthusiasm to this uh, stellar lineup as I did, because this event sold out in minutes, as far as I, I can tell. So um, it's really a thrill for me to have Robin and Nicholas here. I should also say that Robin is just freshly back two days ago from her other home in the Himalayas, and that Nicholas has postponed a trip to some non-specific war-torn part of the Middle East in order to stay here this evening. So please will you uh, thank Robin and Nicholas before we go. Um, I guess my first question to both of you has to be, you know, you've been to see both, both shows, and I guess I wanted to know, Robin, maybe we'll start with you, what, what your response was to the images that you saw in Fiona Tan's work. I've only seen the, um, the exhibition here. Um, and of course, it, uh, I recognised immediately what it was about, in the sense that it's about my life. <laughs> <laughs> when you say fresh off the plane, um, Fresh is not the, quite the right word. <laughs> um, I think it's that that sense that we all have. A, um, I think these days is that we're very complex beings made up of bits and pieces, and we, you know, put our identity together um, uh, in all sorts of ad hoc ways. Um, and I think that, in my case, that's more pronounced because I do um, and have for the last 30 years lived in very discrete worlds. So one is Sydney, one is London, one is India, and previous to that, of course, was the trip across, across Central Australia, which was a, a very intense period of my life. And I think the struggle to it's a perpetual, ongoing struggle. Struggle is the wrong word. It's much too negative. But it does take a lot of energy to take these extremely contradictory, even parts of one's life, and try to make a whole being out of them. And um, and these days, I mean, it used to trouble me that I couldn't quite pull it off. And these days, I, it doesn't trouble me anymore. I simply assume that we are, to some degree or other, all like that. Um, and that's just a part of modernity. So you would relate to that word disorient in a very, totally. in a very totally. personal yes, way. Exactly. Nicholas, what about you? What, what was the resonance of the show for you? I thought it would be a good idea to involve myself in this project because you were directing it and you're so much on the same wavelength of concerns as me and it was a joy to have learned that Robin was involved in it too. But my response was not so much a personal one because I, I always try to look away from the self in, in looking at a, an artwork. But I was, I was very struck by something about the form of this work and the way that art hangs together and we make art today, what art is. And 
I won't talk about this very much because it may open up mm. other avenues, but two things came to me. I think if you look at the, the filmic structure, you can see what the artist is exploring. It's not hard to, to catch. And one of those themes is the theme of flux, of elements coming together and making up a collection, life being made up fragments, life being constructed, woven together, how different this is from the time when people had much more organic, simple, uh, constrained, geographically limited lives. Now, the script that we have of history is that the era of explorations coincided with, with the trip from, from Italy of Marco Polo and with the high renaissance and the colonial explorations that gave birth to this country in its current form and many other consequences too. But this is a very interesting thing to reflect on, the period when Marco was travelling, if he did in fact make a trip to that position. Um, that was a time when suddenly European high culture was exposed, wham, to the rhythms of South America, the images of the Arabic world, the Far East, all these exotic things came rushing in and you began to get mestizo people, people who were born of different cultures, you began to get mestizo cultures that were mixed in. You had the expulsion of Jewish people from the Iberian Peninsula into Central Europe. You had this extraordinary flux of civilizations. And the point that rises with this is that it was a time when form was thrown wide open, when music, when you know, medieval <coughs> train songs suddenly was exposed to all of these strange guitar rhythms which you hear in Spain. Um, it was, it's hard not to look at the Italian Renaissance, which we always regard as the pinnacle of art, and not feel that Bellini was influenced by what he saw in Istanbul, not feel that things were coming from over the Alps into Italy, not to have a sense that the world was at this stage a very, very complex place where there was a lot of freight of influences going on. And at that stage, something quite interesting happened. There becomes there comes a, a, a time of, of classicism when we decide what is great art, what is a great book, what a great tragedy should look like, what a great piece of music should look like, what beautiful paintings are. And the, the, the West pushes back these influences and things harden. This is the sort of cultural legacy that we have now and that we spent the last hundred years basically pulverizing. And so I think that was the theme that this work made me reflect on very much. So you had a, a multiplicit artist making a work about multiplicity. And I feel very much that that is a stance um, I'm in sympathy with in many ways, at the same time as wanting you know, the pure, the true, the beautiful, the culturally, from the fat, the monotheistic, the, the fixed, the certain. But if we accept that that's, that's the, sort of the, the pendulum swing of what's yeah. going on in, in our cultural life, I mean, obviously at a relatively high level of pitch away from mass cultural phenomena, obviously, if we accept that, um, 
it leads to a very interesting conclusion, which is that art and creative endeavour are made richer by travel, I'm sorry to say, by the figure of the traveller, by the Marco Polo figure, by exploration, by exposing yourself to other cultures. It's not a sort of relativist position so much, it's just a position that says what we see in other civilizations can affect us profoundly, the imagery can be strange and new. And that then leads us to believe that there isn't, in fact, a golden age that we're trying to get back to. That there isn't a point of origin, that the trajectory is all. And once you've opened up those themes, I think you've got not only a lot of material for making art, but you've got quite a lot of material for sculpting a life. And you don't need to feel entirely homebound. Can I just make sure that people yes. at the end, because people are straining to hear. Yes. Okay, so can we is, can, can can just boost the, um, the volume on the mics at all? Can you, go, can you hear at the back? There's no point in coming to the room. Well, you can't hear well enough. You guys no, are going to no. have to project your voice. No, I'm just, I've just asked Aaron to yeah, turn, to turn it up and so to project out. So please let's know if you can't hear at the back. Put your hands up if you can't. There's no hands on. Well, we'll the volume. That's no good. Sorry. Okay. We'll give it another go. Um, so basically, I think. Interesting little reverb there. <laughs> okay. Let's hope that's over. Um, so, what you're saying, in a way, I think they're partly, Nicholas, is also that perhaps we like to think that we've invented the kind of hybridity of the way that all our cultures collide on our plate and in all our culture today, but that in fact this has been going on for centuries and that is indeed something that we may uh, return to later in this conversation. But there was something at the end there where you talked about the figure of the traveller and about the idea that travel does, in a sense, to use the cliché, broaden the mind. Um, and I wondered whether I could ask each of you to say something about um, something that's puzzled me for a long, long time. I've never really um, been able to answer this for myself. Can you explain, Robin, um, do you think, what the affinity is that you feel for certain cultures and countries and why you think you fall in love with some places and you respond to them as if you have some kind of link to those places, even though you may have none whatsoever? Mm. Oh, well, look, it's lovely. I think it's largely chance, to tell you the truth. Do you? Yes. Um, with one exception in my case, which is the desert, Central Australian desert. Um, <coughs> I was born in dry country on a cattle station. And I think those first few years, the first smells that you receive uh, um, from the world around you key in something. Um, what I do know is that when I, sorry, when I went to the desert for the first time, it really did feel like a coming home. So this is... Uh, I don't know why that's how it's not working. Should I just turn it off? I think if you turn it off, can you hear me? Yes. Well, I'm just projecting my natural voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't want to have your voice to you. So that's rather mysterious. I can't explain that at all. But it did feel like a, um, 
and like a coming home, I, I guess. Um, and then, of course, I did that trip across Australia, and that entered me into that country in a, in a really profound way. It changed the way, I think it literally changed the configurations inside my head. Um, it was a very, very intense relationship between me and that environment. Um, to such a degree that when I go back now, I find it very painful, and so I tend not to go back. Um, because I can see how, how very much it has changed and how much damage has been done to it. Mm. And so I find that extremely painful. And it's almost like a sort of um, a physical response to as if the damage has been inflicted on me. On the other hand, there is my relationship to the, to the Himalayas. And that I arrived there completely by chance. And I'm now so completely in love with that landscape. The difference being, I think, that I no longer, perhaps when I first went to Central Australia, I had a, a view of the desert, a rather old-fashioned view of the desert as this place of solitude, where you could have sort of expand into this essentially peopleless place. And that has changed um, a lot. I now don't see landscape as something separate from the people who live in it. Mm. So when I say that I love the Himalayas, of course they're physically very beautiful, but it's really the relationship I have with the people who live there and the point at which it changes from them and me to us mm. and the depth of that relationship with those people in that context. Um, but really, I think one's affinity for landscape is, you know, who knows? Who knows? I don't know. But Nicholas, do you have a theory about this? Because you, you um, uh, are European by birth. And um, you've travelled the world as a, a foreign correspondent. You've obviously found a great resonance in Central Australia, in the Northern Territory. Do you have a? You must have asked yourself many, many times about what it is that that means that you find some places feel like home or feel like you ca you are coming home to them, and others have no resonance for you at all. It is a very good and very interesting question, and I have thought about it a lot in moments of introspection. And I'm not sure I have any particularly clear answer, but let me just answer with, with a brief story, if you like. Um, I, I spent lo lots of episodes of my very early youth in parts of northern Australia and parts of the inland and the desert. And just little, little visits and sniffs, and it registered in me as no more than an image. And when I was a very young journalist, I was occasionally dispatched on trips into this extraordinary, wide, intense landscape and moved through it unknowingly, quickly, in and out on the plane, normally with a government minister, no chance for this kind of communion that we were talking about. And so life went on, and I, was, I worked for a long time in... in Central Europe and in 
very different spaces, mm. people spaces, spaces with visible built cultural objects. And I can date it to with quite some precision. I, was, I came back to Australia to work, having been rather frazzled out by the Yugoslavian experience. And it was the, the month that John Howard was elected Prime Minister. It was an easy sort of time marker for you for this epiphany I'm about to describe. And I was sent on a trip to the, the desert in the north. And it was quite literally, in the most simple and unsophisticated sense, a life-transforming experience, which involved um, a perception of the, the light, the rhythm of the country, the structure of the country. It's much as you were saying, you know, it was the country initially, and then subsequently it became the people in the country, and subsequently became the totality of them. And that... You know, I was brought up in mountains. So there's no earthly reason why I should have any kind of sympathy for um, the duplicated iron-red spaces and, and harsh skies. But perhaps because of its remoteness, it seemed extraordinarily beautiful. And every time I go there, even today, I spend a lot of my life down there, there is no moment when I'm not actively conscious of the strangeness and the beauty of the landscape. So it's not a sense of being at home, it's a sense of being somewhere else that is constantly nagging at you and telling you to think, to be aware who you are. This, I think, is one of the components of the experience of travel, if I can you know, call it that, in such a, in where we now are. We can take ourselves, we can carry our baggage, our bags and our baggage. And there we are in a completely different space, which we have the, the luxury that people before us didn't have of inspecting, looking at, assessing. But at the same time, inevitably, it is assessing us. It is looking back at us. Yes, it is watching exactly. us. Yes, yes, yes. And, you don't, and obviously, when you have other people in the mix, it becomes really complicated. <laughs> and, um, and you're in a very unsteady and, and edgy world. And that's kind of one formula for artwork. You know, yeah, there's the absolutely. other formula, which is fixedness and yes. totally yes. Can you hear us at the back? You all right? Okay, great. Right. Sort of. All right, so we're going to have to shake, shout mm. a little bit more than Just we would normally. Apropos that, I, I was trying to think what possibly could be common to the Himalayas and the Central Desert. And one thing is that you can sort of see the bones of the earth in both those mm. places, and there's a lot of air and space um, and I flew back through the tropics and I was reminded how much I detest the tropics <laughs> and, um, and uh, had stopped off at this little island outside Bangkok and there were all these tourists who had gone there willingly this hideous little sweaty island in the middle of this vast, empty sea, and I just thought, this is hell. <laughs> so, obviously... I have exactly know. that response mm-hmm. when I go to the tropics. I find, when people go up to the Daintree and tell me how much they like mm-hmm. it, I always think of the dark, fetid sort of claustrophobia of that, and, and the fact that you can't see the sky, yes. and it, it makes me feel very anxious. So it is true that you, you do, you just have these instant, mm-hmm. instinctive responses to places that are not rational, and, and you can't necessarily explain them. Um, I, I was wondering, though, what you do 
when, when you first get somewhere, we really are being challenged today. <laughs> <laughs> really, we are. My mic seems to be on now. Even though I think I switched it off. And you two, I have no idea what's happened to your volume. But anyway, we'll soldier on. Um, when you arrive somewhere, what I do when I get somewhere, my first port of call is always a market. That's my marker where if I go and look at the food, the food tells me about the politics, the geography, the climate, the culture. It tells me everything I need to know to get my bearings in a place. And so I was just wondering where you both go, not if you're on assignment, obviously, in a combat zone, but where you both go as your first place in order to kind of feel anchored somewhere. Robin, would you like to? Um, I, I'm not conscious that there is a, a pattern to that. Um, that better? Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, no, I didn't. Well, obviously, if it's Central Australia, the first thing I do is go and camp somewhere and put my bum on the sand and feel that it's there and sleep on the earth. And um, uh, that's acknowledging that I'm back in it. Um, in other cultures, of course, a completely different thing because then you're people focused. And I guess, yes, a market is about the first place where you <coughs> can have an interaction with people. And it's a very old interaction, you know, buying and selling. Um, what have you got that I want? Uh, what can I offer you in return? In fact, it's interesting that I take people to India sometimes, and, and initially I was quite sort of disturbed by the fact that all people wanted to do was shop. And then I realised that, of course, that was a way of them actually having an interaction with that, across that cultural line. It wasn't just pure greed. <laughs> <laughs> so, Nicholas, what's your, what's your, how do you get your bearings? <laughs> the, um, the markets, the terrible things can happen in markets, and when Robin was talking, I was thinking, my mind went automatically to an appalling episode in the market at San Leofa in southern, southeastern Turkey. Um, I remember travelling back with a quite annoying photographer from Iraq, and I wanted to stop them. Um, <laughs> I wanted to stop off at a very obscure astrological city called Sumatar, which we had been unable to reach because of some sort of military blockade. And so we went to the market, and this companion of mine was always hungry, always eating. <laughs> so we went into a huge crowd of typical Turkish chaotic market with bits of car parts and birds for sale and veiled women and unveiled women and just an extraordinary mass ceiling magic from which we felt totally alienated and sat down at a kebab house and a standard issue local peasant drifted by carrying a tiny little milk white kid goat and pointed at and and the photographer said, took out a camera and snapped it, and then the guy went away, and the goat went away, and about half an hour later we were thinking to ourselves, how come it's trying to end these And the little 
goat kebab appears. <laughs> <laughs> It's a murderer. I'm not sure I've really ever kind of lived down that sort of but um, it's not for me a market really, it's um, a place of worship uh-huh. is the um, the core ground and that was of course the most disturbing thing about my most recent problem was not being able to go to mosques in Iraq because they're too dangerous and so feeling this terrible sense of imposed division from from the locals. And I guess um, you know, this is being said not from a you know religious or confessional perspective, but somehow that um, that is in, in societies where there are no art galleries, the transcendence is in the places of worship. And very often find myself drifting there. But wouldn't you also say that in societies where there are no art galleries, it's not necessarily the obvious spiritual temples like the churches where you are going to find the transcendent? It may well be in nature. Well, it's a very interesting theme. I just have to find Robin initially discussing it. But. Um, yes, in nature. Well, I suppose there's three things. I shall describe um, what I was doing ten days ago. On the place, on the land that I live in, in the Himalayas, there's a tiny temple um, which has become quite a popular temple. Um, and it was Navratra, which is a particular um, festival date in India. Talk sorry, to the, to sorry. Talk yeah. to the back. Yeah. And um, and part of the of the um, of the celebration was killing a goat. Hmm, that's a thing here. Exactly. We've got the three things here. We've got nature, we've got temple, we've got goat. Goat. Um, and I think so so there's a goat, it's brought along, there's about I guess twenty-five people there from all peasants, you know, teeth missing hard-working, hard-slogging local peasants. Um, and there's the goat, and there's a, about an hour of ritual going on with the local pundit, and people clanging the bells, this tiny little temple, it's as big as this dies. Um, and then the deed was done, and the goat was duly dispatched, the head was taken and put, in, put beside the temple. And it was so moving this event it sort of took you right to where real life is you know one minute the goat is alive the next minute the goat is dead and in an hour's time it's going to be on your plate that's life um and these people who i know in a different context i know them very well as local peasants i visit them i sit and have cups of tea with them some of them work for me um, I consider them my friends. <coughs> but in this situation, they all scrubbed up, they're all clean, and they had on their best clothes. And the only word I can think of is that, is that they were transformed by reverence. And I, f- I feel very close to them in ordinary life, but at this point at the temple, I felt very remote because I could not mm. share that... Um, that, that deep being present and 
and reverence for life and for death and for the big things in life. Um, that's all, just a little anecdote. Nicholas, did you want to respond to that? You, you've mentioned the, 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 um, the death of nature. Well, no, but I, I was saying that nature is a place where you can find the transcendent if you can't find oh, a church. No, it's my bias which introduced the idea of the death of <laughs> <laughs> um, This is a big theme for me, and we were speaking of it before. It's, it's very hard to go into the remote corners of, of this continent anymore and find an area which is not touched by the hand of modern man. Mm quite dramatic in the trends of accelerating and in some sense I don't want to turn away from this idea that human beings can inform and work nature. I'm not a kind of proponent of extreme absence of interaction. But it's very clear that we we essentially already have destroyed the nature of the of the outback and bush irremediately um, wiped out or rendered incredibly obscure and rare huge amounts of this flora and fauna. There's no going back. This is the, this isn't just a you know, biological issue, this is a huge existential metaphysical issue about us and our role as the custodians of the landscape as what has happened. And we're in the process of going down very crudely speaking, the Easter Island Park is cutting down the last tree. You can see people doing this on the local scale. Mm. So I think that's a very serious issue. I can put it this way for an, for an artist. If an artist is somehow um, a figure with a, a conscience who is filtering the events of life and the spiritual content of life and, and holding up a mirror to it. There are very few things which seem to be more critical than our relationship with entities which do not have our threat of consciousness, whether they be um, plants or animals. There is no greater issue. I, I have you know, cold, sweat dreams at night about what in a hundred years people are going to say about our civilization and the things that we do um, in the name of our own values. So, for me, going into nature is very often a rather tarnished experience, and the, the sort of grief that I have in, in that is not, is not the grief of having been there before very often, although my time horizon already quite long in the parts of the, you know, of the landscape that I do go into. Um, it's, it's more a kind of dilemma of how to situate oneself. Mm. Because the, the cultural apparatus that we were dragging along with us for the previous millennium was telling us progress is good, um, we are the enlightenment, we bring knowledge and husbandry, these are the biblical injunctions, and that has all now gone elsewhere. This is where, I'm sorry to say, it all sounds like an incredibly predictable green eco road. I'm actually not trying to come from that perspective at all. This is where other civilizations and cultures which are less able to impose their will on the planet than us do have, if not lessons for us, at any rate, a different perspective. And this is where we need to link up with um, the works of art which are about devastation, nuclear war, disaster, the end of the world. We live, I feel, in apocalyptic times, terribly serious times, and 
um, I just have very little sympathy for art, which is ironic and referential. I think that the tasks before us are extraordinary right now. And in a sense, going out to the periphery, going out into nature, going out into other cultures, being set away from one's own self, from mode of coming to that sort of clarity. Um, I'm just wondering, taking a slightly different tack for a moment, I, I heard a writer from uh, the UK called Jeff Dyer recently, who's written a book called um, Death in Venice, Jeff in Varanasi, or is it the other way around? Anyway, that's the title, I think. And, um, and one of the things that, that um, Jeff Dyer talks about is about the, the tediousness for him of having to notice things in order to write about where you are, and that the, the act of noticing in a conscious way, in a deliberate way, um, interferes with your ability to be completely in the present. It's a little bit like when you see um, tourists all spilling off a bus and taking photographs of a vista. They're not necessarily just experiencing the place. They're so busy focusing on the lens and, uh, and the light and, and all the other things they have to pay attention to. And I was just wondering whether you had ever felt, either of you, as... Um, not, not as writers, but just as travellers, that sometimes you wanted to forget the pen, forget the notion of needing to account for or relate or narrate, and whether you've a been able to be in a place without thinking of yourself as a writer obliged to notice. I feel like this is a talking stick. <laughs> <laughs> um, I never do think that anyway. Uh, I just assume that when, I mean, I don't always think that I'm going to write about what I'm doing anyway, but I always, I assume that when it comes to writing, that what has been important in what I've experienced comes foreground, and what is less important recedes. So I very rarely take notes, um, and almost never take photographs. I try to be as present in whatever's happening as possible. Um, so I think that's just a different sort of writer. Mm -hmm. How does that work for you, Nicholas? Because you are, um, you know, a lot of the time you are writing very intense, very complex meditations, sort of essays, you're, you're involving other people, you're quoting other people. I mean, are there ever any times when you're able to just completely switch off and absorb a place, a mood, a space, without feeling that it's material? Oh, look. Maybe one of the things that first attracted you to the, the desert was this sense of being empty out and of being um, set free, set free from oneself by lack of social context, by rhythm, by seeming featurelessness, although of course the desert is in endlessly more varied and subtle than anything in the, in the tropics. Um, the Look, I, mean, I think of this body of work here in the gallery, and the, it is work made from the experience of the life and the personality and the consciousness. And I guess that the procedures which which um, which interest me are, are ones that I find it very hard to describe. There's several processes going on. There's a precise description. There's a kind of clinging on to the real world for fear it will actually just drift off. And there is a sense that you have to look through it to see what's behind it, to see what you can find beyond. Um, that time is a veil and reality is not 
are a um, personal to lose ourselves and to understand what others think and see. Sorry. And those kinds of tasks are not straightforward. I'm not describing a completely um, simple engagement with the real world, but I feel that with almost everything that Robin has said in the last half hour has sunk into me, I've been thinking about that. that's so true, and I wish I thought of the words to say it that way. It is just what I feel, and it leads me to wonder whether or not the landscapes that we both know inculcate a way of thinking, inculcate a way of being and seeing. Um, I very much, very much have the the sense of being set apart from myself by going into that remote desert world and trying to report on that process is another struggle again. So the pulsation for me is to go out, be in a space and then come back and think about it rather actually without notes or photos. Yes, and of course each place is different too. Sorry, each place has to be very different. The experience of us going into the desert is is quite different to, in my case, trying to, you know, being in a different language. I speak Hindi in India. I haven't sp spoken a word of English for three months. So I've also been not just in another culture and in another kind of social space, but in another language. Um, so that's another whole level of of being disoriented. Mm, mm. I, I wanted to ask you. Um, there's a lovely phrase that Jean. Um, there's a lovely phrase that Jean uses in the catalogue where she talks about Fiona Tan's work being engaged in a kind of um, subjective visual anthropology, which I think is a, a great way of describing. Um, I want to know what it means. Yeah, what what it <laughs> well, we have Jean there. She can explain to us what she means. But I, can work. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that I would ask you whether you saw yourselves as um, subjective anthropologists, because it seems to me that that is very much what, 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 as a reader, that's how I experience you, that you're telling me about um, a culture, um, a, a tribe, a place, you're decoding all sorts of um, things about uh, uh, an alien experience but you're doing it through the prism of your own personal history. So, Robin, you're kind of frowning and thinking about that, so think about yes, that. It was a terrific phrase, and I kept saying, hmm, subjective anthropology, yes, I, hmm, does that mean an anthropology of the self, or does it mean a completely subjective or, or a hermetically sealed response to other ways of being? I'm just not quite sure what it means, really. <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to go over to... <laughs> Look, on a slightly different tack, but on the same theme, I feel that when we are moving as a story crafter or a storyteller, story hunter through the landscape, we think we know what we're doing, we think we know what we're looking for and we're shaping. So if you're any if you have any right to be doing what you're doing, that's not what's going on at all. It's nothing to do with it. There are other forces that are driving you that you don't know. There are 
other things that are pushing you. In essence, this isn't a view of you know, fate or predetermination, but you are going down a track, a path. You will be given what you need. If you have yourself tuned like a radar, if you're on a radar scan to pick up what is being given to you, it will come to you. You will find the path that you need in writing, as of course I'm sure in life. And you then have the task of shaping it. That's the, the doctrine that I think is pushed in on one constantly by, by traveling, by studying other people, by seeking to know oneself in the mirror of landscape. Well, I'd like to ask you, Nicholas, about one particular word that um, you use a lot, particularly in a prologue, I think, to um, the Red Highway or to the other one, um, Journeys to the Interior. You talk a lot about fear and about the role that fear plays in your, um, in your exploration. And I was just wondering whether you could tell us what kind of fear you mean. Are you talking about danger and risk? Because I was thinking about that in relation to the dangers that um, Marco Polo must have encountered on his journey. Or, or is it, you, you talk about it as a kind of more exalted version of fear. And I wasn't quite sure what that meant. I'm talking about the sort of biblical fear that courses through the Old Testament, fear of, fear of life and fear of the scale of the world and the emotions that we face in it. I'm talking about things which are more present when the, the, um, the externalities have been taken away. And this is a constant theme of European travel in the Australian landscape. It is also I think the crucial underpinning of the indigenous experience of the landscape in Central Australia and perhaps in, in the north and other areas which I'm not so, so familiar with on the surface. So no one wants to talk about this, no one wants to foreground their angst, no one wants to say I'm fighting to go out in the dark. No one wants to say, the eyes of the universe are staring at me. But this is a presence for me all the time, all the time. And it's linked into a sense of time. It's linked into a sense of fate in the landscape. And I think it's just more visible here, maybe more visible for me here, than it is in, in settled areas. Would you like to say something? Yes. Um, well, I know that, 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 that that's a wonderful phrase, the fear because the universe is looking at us. Fantastic. Um, yes, although in the desert I don't feel physically afraid. I mean, I feel very confident of my environment, let's say. Um, I don't feel the ordinary fears. Um, none at all. I'm not afraid of snakes. I'm Scorpions, I, I have no physical fear. I feel completely at home because I feel that I know the environment very well. Um, there is that existential fear. So, you know, when you don't have those ordinary fears, I guess that existential fear has a lot more room to play. Um, in the mountains, on the other hand, um, my first experience of the jungle, it's oak jungle where I live, 
was the first time that I was in, in an environment where I could be prey. There are leopards, there was a tiger, um, there are bears, particularly nasty, mean-spirited bears. <laughs> and in fact, the first time I was there, this very sweet Indian gentleman said, um, Madam, please don't go out um, in the jungle on your own without a gun because the bears will eat your face and other soft parts. <laughs> and it does, it's a completely different way of being in landscape, completely, sort of antithetical way of being in landscape, knowing that you can, you know, turn a corner and boom, you've had it. Um, but yes, I know exactly what you mean about those that larger scope of fear, um, which I think is a very good thing to be able to feel. Maybe that's why we go out there. And is that is that? Do you think that that's one of the experiences that people are really looking for when they go to these places? Is uh, a time when they can be, in a sense, less sophisticated and return to a time of instinct. I don't know what it is, whether I call it instinct or not. It's simply more real. The way I think about that place in the Himalayas is that it is more deep, it is more true, it is more real. And I go there to be connected to that sense of the real. Um, I don't think I can put it better than that, really. It's. Um, It's deeper and truer and more real. And people's, you know, one's relationship with people is also at that kind of level. Um, and there's something about the way those peasants use the jungle and at the same time have tremendous reverence for their jungle um, that I find very moving and, and that helps me it gives me a terrific perspective on my life back here. Is that the one that's great? Do you want to comment on that one, please? Well, we're really at the bedrock of this, <laughs> this conversation now, um, <laughs> with the landscape sublime right up to the fore. And clearly, I'm a taker for this particular recipe, and um, I feel much the same way. But I also feel that, um, that nothing human is alien to me and the, the great traditions of Western culture are not something which I'm in flight from. I want to find these two things together. I want not to be, I mean, I can't become you know, a, a Central Australian desert dweller. Um, I can't become a, a man of the Himalayan mountains. Um, I am what I am, and hybrid, and dispersed, and you know, from multiple places. And the thing for me is binding these aspects together, trying to make them into a script which maybe not be, will not be coherent, but will have accents of beauty, will have um, comparisons running through it, will have a sort of mystic wholeness and intelligence about it, if you struggle to craft it if you if you build it. And I think this is 
really the path which we all are thrown into in our hybrid world. And, you know, Robin and I happen to be people who hang out in, in unusual parts of the, the world and rather maybe take ourselves away. But that doesn't, I think, mean that the task that is before us is radically different from the task before the standard dweller in Western society is going off to see exotic movies or having weird experiences because of the speed and the velocity of life which jams everything against each other. Um, so and that takes us back to this work, exactly. Precisely yeah, yeah. this, this work. Yeah, and that's, that's what I'm... I'm I think this, the patch of clarity is only a component of the whole tapestry for me. Um, it's, it's, um, it's a concentrator. It's a very beautiful concentrator, but it's not the whole. If, if I was to live in that world all the time, I would be airless, I would be dying, I would be lost, it's not my world. Um, these are the sorts of dilemmas that we constantly struggle. I think uh, we are very conscious of people's comfort always and uh, their capacity, you know, to sustain uh, something that is intellectually demanding after a working day. Um, my feeling is we should take a break when Caroline's ready to wind up and then we've got a, a, we'll have some drinks and so on and then there's a movie um, <clears throat> which is about uh, 45 minutes long about um, Fiona Tan's search for her own identity uh, with a Chinese father, the Indonesian beginning, and so on, and she's the maker of this work. So, is that does yeah, that sound I, I, right? I was going to, in fact, say that mm. at this point, I was going to invite anyone from the audience who had any questions for Nicholas or Robin to um, to ask them now, because it seems like an ideal moment to do that. And then I was going to do exactly what you suggested, Jean. Um, so, if you do have a question, yes, David. Um, <laughs> just seeing that you you touched on this a little bit in the conversation, it's really about the uh, aspect of you both feeling like, if not at home in these environments, but at least feeling immersed in them. And I was wondering if it's important to, to both or either of you that as artists and as writers that there's also the sense of being an outsider. And is, is that sense of being an outsider something that you, that stimulates you and, and, and uh, is important to your work, or do you not feel that at all? <laughs> I'm constantly trying to move inside the frame. I mean, that was my sense. Uh, I, I lived with nomads in India for, um, well, it was a project of a couple of years, and then I went on migration with a group of nomads for three or four months, I can't remember. Um, and I had this sense that I was constantly trying to move inside their frame. Um, and. This idea of subjective anthropology, I mean, I'm not an anthropologist, I'm not an ethnographer. There's something else I'm trying to do. Um, and it's, it's something to do with trying to not just understand how those people think or function, but what is, what is truly common to us, I suppose. Um, so yes, I think I am constantly, and that's one of the drivers, is constantly trying to move inside, to get closer and closer to that sense of us rather than me and them. 
even though it's an impossible project. <laughs> um, of course, of course, an outsider is wild. <laughs> on that note, we've got another question, otherwise we'll wrap it up and um, ah, so there is there is a question. Just have a comment. I think when we started it was really interesting to note that I can't remember one of the first questions that um Nicholas actually talked about and compared a couple of responses between Robin and himself about um, looking at works and looking at art and looking at culture or whatever it might be. Um, uh, quite objectively. Um, and I think it was really interesting to note that moving through um, the discussion and talking about home and, and environments, um, that the difference between that I picked up between um, some of the responses was that Robin's account really, I found, accentuated the experience of, of the other, both as subject and also, um, I suppose, as a viewer. Um, whilst Rothwell's responses were indicative of this hybrid cross-pollinated experience of um, being immersed in the environment. And I just thought it was a real, a little transgression from, um, from the beginning of that conversation. And, um, and, and that was a comment, but before that question, do you really think that we can separate um, um, spiritual places and of worship, whether they take forms as objects or spaces from um, other, nature-based spaces? My advice would be to say yes. Do you want me to go on? Yes. Um, <laughs> I feel that the, there is a, a depth and a warmth and a resonance in the whole, the whole planet and the whole world we see with our senses, but somehow the, the presence of, of human emotions in the landscape changes its tone for me, so I imagine, and I feel more uh, at home in such places, even though, as I, I mentioned before, I'm not approaching this from the point of view of a dogmatic religious person at all. Um, I found great solace in those, in those places. That's what I can say. As you can tell with these two, there's such a great kind of richness to their um, thoughts and their writing that we could be here for days. And this is just a sort of tantalising taster. Um, so we're going to take a break now. I think we're going to have some nibbles and some drinks before we watch the movie. Please thank Robin and Nicholas.